Woody Guthrie Center and Bob Dylan Center present Fire in Little Africa, a multimedia hip-hop project inspired by the resilience of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And now, coming at you live from Greenwood, here are your hosts, Ali Shaw and Doc Free. Welcome to the Fire in Little Africa podcast. I'm Ali Shaw, and I'll be one of your co-hosts as every week... We dive deep into conversation about hip hop, art, and entrepreneurship live from the original Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My name is Dr. Freeman, and I'll be your other host as we have the honor to introduce you to one of the dopest, most exciting independent hip hop movements in the country coming right here in the middle of the map in Tulsa. But before we do that, we thought it was important to give you this episode zero with some historical background on Tulsa. Because truly, in order to understand what is happening in Tulsa in 2020, you have to understand what happened in Tulsa almost 100 years ago in 1921. In the early 20th century, Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood was a thriving mecca of black business. The oil boom in Oklahoma saw wealth pouring into Greenwood as Tulsa became the oil capital of the world. And Jim Crow laws meant those dollars continued to circulate within the black community. In this time, Tulsa was referred to as the magic city for its ability to make people rich with oil, sometimes overnight. The entrepreneurs of Greenwood believed black people had a better chance of economic progress if they pooled their resources, worked together, and supported each other's businesses. Soon, people like Booker T. Washington spread word around the nation that Tulsa was the promised land of opportunity for blacks in America, and Black Wall Street was born. In 1921, white Tulsans, with the backing of city leaders like Tate Brady, attacked Greenwood and burned 40 square blocks to the ground. Hundreds of people were killed and thousands lost their homes and businesses in one of the worst incidences of racial violence in American history. The scapegoat for the massacre was 19-year-old shoeshiner named Dick Rowland, falsely accused of attacking a white girl in an elevator which set off the chain of events that led to the massacre of Greenwood. For years, this dark chapter was left out of textbooks as Tulsa attempted to erase part of its past. Nearly 100 years later, the massacre still hangs heavy over the city, and the scars of 1921 may never fully heal. Miraculously, this set of circumstances have birthed a hip-hop scene built on love, community, and the legacy of the ancestors that paved the way. As you will see and hear in this podcast, as well as the forthcoming album and documentary, hip-hop artists in Tulsa have taken on an important role in leading the community in processing this generational trauma and ushering in a new era for Tulsa with the groundbreaking multimedia hip-hop project, Fire in Little Africa. Future episodes of this podcast will feature interviews with artists leading the hip-hop scene in Tulsa, the community leaders working to commemorate the centennial of the massacre, and national leaders in the hip-hop culture. But for the rest of today's episode, we just wanted to share a brief 20-minute audio documentary from Tulsa Massacre Centennial Commission so you can learn more about the history of Black Wall Street and the legacy of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oklahoma statehood in 1907, African-American boosters like E.P. McCabe touted Oklahoma Territory, the western portion of what had been Indian Territory and what is now Oklahoma, as a virtual promised land for African-Americans. 
McCabe dreamt of an all-black state carved from within Oklahoma Territory. In the late 1800s, McCabe began recruiting African Americans using bulletins and hired agents to encourage them to escape Southern oppression by heading west. Many did just that. Though an all-black state never materialized in Oklahoma Territory, more all-black towns were created in Oklahoma than in any other state, including the town McCabe founded, Langston, Oklahoma. The promise of Oklahoma soon faded. At statehood, the newly minted Oklahoma legislature signaled its round embrace of Jim Crow segregation by passing Senate Bill No. 1, a bill that firmly ensconced segregation as a law of the land in Oklahoma. Tulsa, the magic city, beckoned multiple souls in the early 1900s. These seekers, white and black, shared a vintage American optimism. They believed in the prospect of a better life and they came to oil-rich Tulsa in search of it. The African-Americans among these migrants wound up in the Greenwood District. The Greenwood District pioneers in Tulsa took full business advantage of Jim Crow. They seized the opportunity to disprove the inferiority myth through their own ingenuity. With growth came the need for commerce, education, and entertainment. A class of African-American entrepreneurs filled the void. Attorney J.B. Stratford and businessman O.W. Gurley led the way. Booker T. Washington called Greenwood Avenue, the main artery in the Greenwood District, the Negro Wall Street. Eclectic and electric, this famed thoroughfare drew favorable comparisons to legendary thoroughfares such as Beale Street in Memphis and State Street in Chicago. The surrounding area teemed with business and entrepreneurial activity. African-American businessmen and professionals mingled with day laborers, musicians, and maids. African-American educators molded young minds. African-American clergy nurtured spirits and soothed souls. Savvy entrepreneurs like Simon Berry developed their businesses around the needs of the community. Barry started a nickel-a-ride jitney service with his topless Model T Ford. He ran a bustling business line later purchased by the city of Tulsa. In addition, he owned one of several African-American boutique hotels, the Royal Hotel, and shuttled wealthy oil barons on a charter airline service he operated with his partner, James Lee Northington Sr., a successful black building contractor. Some claim Simon Berry made as much as $500 a day in his prime. Dr. A.C. Jackson, a prominent surgeon, managed to breach the color line. Called the most able Negro surgeon in America by the Mayo Brothers of Mayo Clinic fame, Dr. Jackson treated both black and white patients. In the end, his pedigree and reputation could not save him from the horrors of the riot. A teenager shot and killed Dr. Jackson as he alighted from his residence in surrender. The Williams family found economic success with several businesses, including the Williams Dreamland Theater, a rooming house atop the theater, a confectionery, a garage, and rental property along Greenwood Avenue. Mabel B. Little, a Greenwood District pioneer, operated a thriving beauty salon. 
She lived to be 104 years old. In her autobiography, she recalled her 1913 arrival in the Greenwood District. 17, from all-black Bowley, Oklahoma, and with only $1.25 to her name, Little deboarded a Frisco train. Black business flourished. I remember Huff's Cafe on Cincinnati and Archer. It was a thriving meeting place in the black community. You could go there almost any time, and just about everybody would be there or on their way. Educators like E.W. Woods, principal of Booker T. Washington High School for over 35 years, gained respect and renown throughout the city. Mr. Woods came to Tulsa by foot from Memphis, Tennessee, in answer to a call for colored teachers. Local press dubbed Woods the quintessential Tulsan for his preeminent leadership in the realm of public education. The Tulsa Convention Center hosted his 1948 funeral, a testament to his life and legacy. The Greenwood District, this parallel black universe, existed just beyond downtown, separated from white Tulsa physically by the Frisco Railroad tracks and psychologically by layers of social stratification. It blossomed despite the rampant racism that permeated early 20th century America. The notoriety and prosperity of Tulsa's African-Americans and the ascendancy of their Greenwood district ran counter to the prevailing notion of black inferiority fear and jealousy swelled over time. The economic prowess of Tulsa's African-American citizens, including home, business, and land ownership, caused increasing consternation and friction. African-American soldiers, having tasted freedom on foreign soil in World War I, came back to America with heightened expectations. Valor and sacrifice in battle earned them the basic respect and human dignity so long denied at home they discovered that America had not changed. Oklahoma had not changed. Tulsa had not changed. Limitations, expectations, and aspirations collided. Soon, things would spin woefully out of control, resulting in a disaster of epic proportions. Recovery would come, but not before immense loss and lingering heartache. A seemingly random encounter between two teenagers in downtown Tulsa lit the fuse that set the Greenwood District alight. The alleged assault on a 17-year-old white girl, Sarah Page, by a 19-year-old black boy, Dick Rowland, in an elevator triggered unprecedented civil unrest. That single catalytic event is often cited as the cause of the 1921 Tulsa race riot. Truth be told, long-standing, underlying socioeconomic factors led to the brutal attack on Tulsa's African-American community. Fueled by angst over African-American prosperity, land lust, and a racially hostile climate in general, segments of Tulsa's white community lashed out. A local newspaper stoked the embers of Tulsa's emerging firestorm. The Tulsa Tribune framed the elevator incident in black and white. Nab Negro for attacking girl in an elevator. Authorities arrested Roland. 
a swelling white mob vowed to seize the inmate from his jail cell to lynch him. A small group of African-American men marched to the courthouse to protect Roland. Law enforcement authorities implored them to retreat back to the Greenwood District, assuring them of the teen's safety. But tensions escalated. More African-American men assembled. Now, a contingent of several dozen black men, some of them bearing arms, exchanged words with the swelling group of angry white men gathered on the courthouse lawn. A struggle over a gun ensued. The gun discharged. Chaos erupted. Thousands of weapon-wielding white men, some of them deputized by local law enforcement, invaded the Greenwood District. In a 16-hour span, people, property, hopes, and dreams vanished as flames consumed the community. Roving gangs prevented firefighters from taking action. The state of Oklahoma declared martial law in Tulsa. It took the Oklahoma National Guard to restore order. Authorities herded African-Americans into internment camps around the city, ostensibly for their own protection. Camp staff released detainees only upon presentation of green cards countersigned by white guarantors. The Tulsa disaster, the worst such event in American history, proved costly indeed. Property damage ran into the millions. Hundreds of people were killed and injured. Many African-Americans fled Tulsa, never to return. No white person was ever convicted of a crime. Law enforcement officials indicted dozens of black men for inciting a riot. An all too common charge leveled against assertive men of color in that era. Even as the fires smoldered, Greenwood District pioneers pledged to rebuild their community from the ashes. Official Tulsa leadership touted cooperation and collaboration, but hindered relief and reconstruction. Following the decimation of the Greenwood District, the Tulsa City Commission blamed African-American citizens for their own plight. City officials turned away outside donations earmarked for the rebuilding. African-Americans shouldered their share of the load. Spears, Franklin, and Chappelle litigated claims against the city of Tulsa and insurance companies for damages. The firm also counseled and consoled victims and made urgent appeals to African-Americans nationwide for assistance. B.C. Franklin, a named partner in that firm, rebuffed Tulsa's attempt to enact a more stringent fire code that would have made rebuilding cost prohibitive for many. For these men, the Greenwood District was not simply a business venue, it was home. Some in Tulsa's white community intervened. First Presbyterian Church and Holy Family Cathedral helped shelter and feed fleeing victims of the racial violence. The American Red Cross supplied desperately needed comfort and calm in the wake of Tulsa's man-made storm, including food, shelter, clothing, and medical care. Former Tulsa news anchor Bob Hauer chronicled this relief effort in Angels of Mercy, an accounting of the riot based on American Red Cross documents, reports, and photographs. Hauer's grandfather, Maurice Willows, led the relief effort. 
Black builders secured lumber and supplies, often having to venture outside the state to purchase their materials. Entrepreneurs vowed to reestablish their presence. Black churches rallied their parishioners. Greenwood District denizens never wilted in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds. Mabel B. Little, a beautician, summoned up equal doses of courage and confidence to meet the unprecedented challenges. The Lord blessed me and Presley. At the time I am reckoning, we had worked hard to better ourselves for even long, hard years. In the end, we didn't get hardly any help from the white community. We had to save our own, use what small means we had, and cooperate together. Our top wages then were $5 to $10 a week, and we couldn't even borrow money. We had to cooperate together. There was no other choice. Little by little, we built our business back up. Mount Zion Baptist Church epitomizes the remarkable courage and determination of the people of post-riot Greenwood. Only six weeks old when the violence broke out, the $75,000 church had been built with the help of a $50,000 loan from a single individual. Fear mongers claimed the church housed a cache of arms. Invaders seized upon and torched Mount Zion, leaving nothing but a dirt floor basement. Church members met in private homes. They balked at debt extinguishment through bankruptcy, feeling morally obligated to repay the mortgage, even absent the building. Decades later, Mount Zion paid off the loan and raised enough money to build a new structure. In short order, the community came alive once again, bigger and better than ever. In 1925, the Greenwood District hosted the annual conference of the National Negro Business League. By 1942, scores of businesses again called the area home. Greenwood regained her vaunted status as America's Negro Wall Street. Integration, urban renewal, a new business climate, and the aging of the early Greenwood District pioneers precipitated a pronounced economic decline beginning in the 1960s. As the 1970s approached, only a few businesses remained on Greenwood Avenue. Urban renewal, dubbed urban removal by locals, drove others away. In the early 1970s, a cadre of Tulsa civic and political leaders began to slow and then reverse the decline of the Greenwood District. Tulsa Mayor James Hughley, the Tulsa City Commission, and African-American community members helped create what is now one of Oklahoma's, and indeed one of America's, showplaces, the Greenwood Cultural Center, long an integral part of the planning for the Greenwood District. In early February of 1980, the City of Tulsa convened a meeting to discuss economic development initiatives for the Greenwood District. Tulsa Mayor James Inhofe challenged those assembled to develop a vision for the future of the community. The Greenwood Cultural Center's 1983 debut marked a turning point in Greenwood District history. Here, Tulsa's African-American heritage is preserved and promoted through educational experiences and cultural tourism. Today, homes and businesses dot Greenwood Avenue all the way to Archer Street. In addition to the Greenwood Cultural Center, Oklahoma State University of Tulsa sits on the site of the original 1913 Booker T. Washington High School. Langston University, Tulsa, is located to the north. One Oak Field, 
home of the Tulsa Drillers minor league baseball team, occupies a block on the east end of the Greenwood District. John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park sits on the western boundary of the Greenwood District. Located at the junction of the Tulsa Arts and Greenwood Districts, where the riot began, the park opened on October 27, 2010, and includes bronze tablets recounting the riot and two large pieces by noted sculptor Ed DeWight. Two historic riot-era churches remain in the heart of the Greenwood District, Mount Zion Baptist Church and Vernon African Methodist Episcopal Church. The Greenwood District now sits poised for a renaissance. Big thanks to Hannibal Johnson for the usage of this footage. For more links and resources regarding the 1921 massacre, please visit Tulsa2021.com. That's Tulsa2021.com. For more information on Fire in Little Africa, please visit FireInLittleAfrica.com.